0: Welcome to the gorilla pastors podcast i'm your host josiah on today's episode we're going to talk about money and while yes the subject of budgets will come up what we're really going to discuss is how finances shape the way we do church as a quick reminder all of our experiences have taken place within the nazarene denomination and while this podcast will not remain within the nazarene tribe indefinitely it's important to name where we have come from. Our stories and ministerial experiences have been within the Nazarene tribe. This does not mean that it won't translate to a broader American evangelical world. A world shaped by its desire to have influence and power, which requires money. So let's talk about it.
1: Was that Christians could not have conversation with each other if they
2: disagreed with one another?
1: It's all about entering in to the textured presence of lived lives. And so the, the sanitation of it just broke for me. Like, church can't be sanitized. I always feel like I'm not what people think of when they think of a
0: pastor. I went to school for youth ministry and have now figured out how to do, like, construction work. It's good good stuff.
2: The church is struggling and declining in ways that we've never experienced in the United States and Canada right now. We have to,
1: like, allow ourselves to embrace new ways of being in a place. Insurgent revolutions, i.e. guerrilla warfare, is 20% bullets and 80% blessing the people
2: how do we be eternally faithful like literally like how do we be faithful in a way today that in 20 years people aren't going he was evil why are we so afraid we believe that god is at work in all places in all people at all times that is amazing and that should give us hope
0: We are the Gorilla Pastors. Join us as we explore a world of ministry founded on subversive presence. Jesus says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And while I am not here to preach at you, I think it's important that the subject of money comes up more than almost anything in the parables and teachings of Jesus. Now we can speculate wildly as to why that might be the case, but for our purposes in today's episode, let's just agree that money is a big deal. The subject of money dictates how we do the things we do within certain church institutions. In our small corner of Nazarendom, we operate under a 501c3, and this is simply a tax filing with the IRS that restricts what we can or cannot do with money and how we account for it. This nonprofit status is held by the broader denomination, which means that each local church does not have its own separate 501c3, and it instead falls under the umbrella of the larger denomination. Now once again, this is only in the United States. As the Nazarene Church is an international denomination, different countries have different codes and laws for how they deal with these sorts of things. Within the US, this also shapes how we use our buildings. As we fall under a big umbrella, we must get permission to do certain things with the facilities that we are charged with the caretaking of really what this means is if we wanted to do some major changes or renovations or if we wanted to sell off some of our land we would have to get some sort of district approval the intention for most of this seems to come from a desire to keep everyone out of trouble now this idea of staying out of trouble is perhaps felt most strongly for lead pastors when they prepare their sunday morning sermons Based on conversations that my co-hosts and I have had, we can share with you unequivocally that oftentimes those who show up are tithers who have expectations for what their pastor should or should not talk about. And if their expectations aren't met, they're going to take their tithe home or maybe to the church down the road. And this leaves us with a conundrum. What are we to do with this current financial paradigm when we are often convicted to say things that might upset our tithing base or perhaps we're simply church attenders or lay leaders and we struggle with this idea that we have to keep those who financially contribute the most happy in just a moment you will hear my co-hosts brian wardlaw and ryan fasani's responses to these questions unfortunately we had some slight technical difficulties so some of our conversation is a little bit garbled in light of this Here is our conversation about the current financial paradigm.
1: Uh, We should start by just acknowledging that the three of us have been um, in pastoral roles where a weekly teaching opportunity or preaching opportunity was part of our responsibility. And so we know firsthand the unique nature and unique pressures that come with being the public order that is supposed to elicit generosity from, in our case, a congregation. And the problem that arises in that dynamic is that the weight of quote-unquote fundraising or the weight of financial faithfulness becomes the responsibility of the leader that is speaking, preaching, teaching. And the problems there are many, but the one that I, I would like to highlight just right out of the gate is that the economic paradigm that seems to continue to be reinforced there is that the giver or the tither um, is often the one that holds the most influence because now their, their giving is associated with their opinions of what is being preached. And that's a dynamic that needs to ex- be explored because we know the tensions from the other end. We also know what fallout looks like on the other end.
2: Yeah. And I, I do think there's just there's so many scenarios in it, but I think the system in itself creates the circling of the wagon. Um, it, it, it naturally does. If, if all the gifts are coming from within and then and they, and the givers feel like they are then expecting some kind of service or something in return, then it naturally creates an internal circle that just is continuous. It's a country club mentality. I mean, you pay your dues, you get something in, in return, whether it be great, great things like youth ministries and, and children's ministries and uh, a decent preacher and worship leader, and maybe even a smoke machine um, and light, lighting if you're cool. You know, um, but and changing backgrounds and themes and stuff like that. So I just think the rhythms of the church. If all the money is coming from within and you're depending on that, and then it also it also the money most of the money is being spent within, then it it creates an internal wheel that continues to serve self, which is obviously not kingdom minded.
0: I have experienced firsthand some of these ramifications of not preaching what you're supposed to preach. And I think it gets into not only just the topics of what should or shouldn't be talked about on a Sunday morning and what is Sunday morning approved for sermon fodder, but it also gets to something a little bigger as far as just the role of pastor and the role of lay leadership. One of the interesting components to this for me Has been the reality that there is a certain style of spiritual gifting that is more celebrated on the Sunday morning in within the the sermon behind a pulpit. I think we've talked about this in the past, but maybe the teacher shepherd version of pastor is the most celebrated for a Sunday morning because generally speaking, if we're talking about the country club or this internal wheel it's the it's the sermon type that makes people feel good but if you come in prophetically or apostolically or or whatever it's not necessarily the sunday morning that makes you feel good as you leave and so there's almost a quid pro quo built into our financial systems currently and when i say currently for the last few hundred years there has been this this style of sunday morning focused church ministry that that absolutely brings everything into a uh, pretty strict framework. I mean the irony is that you can go to a conference as a pastor and joke about what you recently got in trouble for preaching about. And it's almost never anything that's actual heresy, right? It's just something that upset somebody because of some sort of cultural component, some sort of philosophical disagreement, some sort of topic of the day that they fall on the other side of the issue about. It almost never has to do with actual theology, actual heresy. It's just, I didn't like that because it made me feel a certain way. So this limiting factor, though, of the Sunday morning has a cascading effect that I feel like we have been wrestling with for a long time. Brian, in particular, has been spending over a decade grappling with. But big picture-wise, when we talk about things like broad kingdom imagination, What does this limitation inhibit us from doing?
1: To answer the question, how does this economic paradigm inhibit what we're trying to do as, um, as ones that employ a broad kingdom imagination? I think it's critical to understand that the nonprofit status that is the local church, or in our case, the denomination at large of which the local churches are subsidiaries, Is not uniquely a religious institution problem. This economic paradigm with the unhealthy forces that limit the mission of organizations is a nonprofit, generally speaking, problem. So if you step outside the church and you go down to the food bank or to the after school program, they're dealing with a very similar sort of pressure from donors, right? But what's expected from those donors is maybe not a Particular, particularly limited type of sermon as much as it is maybe a slant on a particular program, and you could you could even broaden it out further to understand these sort of macro forces, right? Like we we, we incentivize giving for generally the wealthy, but you know to social service agencies in general for a a gift back to them, which is sheltered, you know, a shelter from certain taxes. All this is setting up. You know, a type of imbalance where the ones with the most wealth are the ones that have the most power, are the ones that have the most say about how that wealth is applied in any particular situation. In our case, it's how it's applied in the local church. And because our ecclesiology is limited down to literally what we pull off on a Sunday morning, the pinnacle of which is the teaching moment for those 20 to 45 minutes by the preacher. Of course, th- th- those that give the largest are going to dictate what that preacher says and how they deliver it. And if unless if we it, like admit that from the outset, which are those larger forces at play, sort of the contextual macro forces and the very particular forces at play, which are truthfully the ones that give the most t- get to dictate how we preach, then we then we'll never be able to sort of unshackle the you know unfetter. The possibilities of a broad kingdom kind of imagination or creative praxis on how we, you know, both imagine worship service, but also decentralize the worship service in the life of the church, right? To, to be really specific, to answer the question, right? Like, we have to free the economic pressure on not just the preacher, but anybody in leadership, board leadership, deacon leadership pastoral leadership, preacher leadership. We must untangle that from the forces that dictate self-service, ideological interests, and, God forgive us, political sensitivities and proclivities, right? And, and we're just not. We're like so deeply entrenched in those forces because of some of these broader kind of macro forces of the systems we participate in.
2: I that one of those obviously being the financials that it just plays into the the bad praxis the the lack of diverse um praxis you know the lack of kingdom imagination i i th- this is my example the you know this time of year none of us have ac and so the church that rents the homestead next door has you know the homesteads Windows are open and our windows are open, and, and so I listen to their worship. Um, and as their people came in on Sunday morning, I, I hear the worship leader start up, and he's singing a song that I'm going to paraphrase that basically goes something like this: "Surely the presence of the Lord is this place, and it's beautiful." And and there's nothing wrong with those words, but the thing that I, I think that the way that it connects into this conversation is, as well as with the finances is sometimes we're missing the fact that the presence of the Lord is everywhere all the time and its beauty is is in every part of my life. And when we continue to nail it down to that to that sanctuary, not only do we go back pre I would say crucifixion <laughs> or you know, uh uh, we go back to the holiest of holies. I, I think we negate everything that I believe the cross does um, in releasing this the spirit, the presence of Christ, uh, or I should say, reminding us that the presence of Christ is everywhere um, through the power of the Spirit. I I just I think that um, it just continues to reiterate this internal circular circle the wagons take care of self institutional manner that our finances do our ecclesiology ecclesiology do our eschatology does i mean all all of that so it's just it's it's just and until we can start to see that and give praxis to finances being used being brought in in more diverse ways ryan brought up the 501c and see three limitations which are really no limitations because we can actually we can actually create businesses to um to bring in finances to support the ministry and i think if we did that it not only it get, it continues in our praxis because all of a sudden we have people running businesses that support the local church ministry which then continues to blur the lines that we create right now into this Insular, circular kind of country club mentality of a Sunday morning at a church building, things like that. So the more things we do, even that create finances that spend and in um, expenditures and income of finances that blend those lines, it allows us to have that greater kingdom, uh, diverse practice, kingdom imagination, all those things.
0: So what can we practically do to maybe broaden an imagination that is narrow? Because it sounds to me, you know, with 501c3 considerations, even within our own Nazarene polity, and again, we're Nazarene, that's our denomination. None of this stuff necessarily has to only be couched in the Nazarene denomination, though. What can we do practically to help broaden an imagination that embodies a a broad kingdom of imagination when it comes to finances, because you can go down the street in almost any major metropolitan area you'll probably find a hospital that is a faith institution right it is born of you know a catholic church's benevolence or something like that or, or there's other denominations you could potentially find yourself shopping for clothing from a person that tries to do more equitable trade and it's maybe again like a parachurch organization or coffee roasters or fill in the blank, but what can we do within our own little tribe or just in with, within American evangelicalism to practically broaden our imaginations? Does it look like having pastors that do different things? Because I, one of the th- questions I've heard is, well, where does a pastor fit into a thing like a hospital? Or how does that work with ministry? Because we have, again, some of it is just perspective. It's such a narrow view for what pastoring looks like. So what what can we even practically do to start shifting some of our day-to-day practices within our own tribe, within American evangelicalism, to better embody broad kingdom imagination as it pertains to financially supporting the ministries we're trying to do.
2: Yeah, I I think that, I think it has to start, I think two places I think about, and again, I apologize for the uh, roofing, (laughs) Uh, but two things that, uh, two places, one is that we start we start talking about it in new ways. So when people talk about church or the ministry or pastoral roles within only the ways that we know it, we immediately stop it. I mean, the, when, when someone asks a question, like you just asked, like, where is the pastoral, the role of the pastor in a hospital? Or where is the ministry opportunity? It, it, it has to get flipped around. What, where, where is it not? I mean, how, how is not? I mean, every every pastor the ability for them to walk into a hospital and then breathe into their people that work there and then disciple them in a way that they understand that every interaction is holy and is spiritual uh and they don't have to use the word jesus or lord to, to make it spiritual uh i then then all of a sudden it releases the people in the congregation to understand that every time they walk through the doors and walk down the hallways of that hospital and, and put an IV in someone's arm or clean them, or they have the ability to speak love and care and empathy and hope um, into those person's lives, um, that hope that goes beyond the deathbed. I mean, all those opportunities. And we have those. I had those, I had those opportunities when I coach. I had those opportunities when I ran my own business the 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 possibilities are endless if we're only if we're willing to take it away from an office. Um I think and so I think we can do it by pastors starting to tell good stories of what does it mean for the spirit of of Christ to have broken out of the holiest of holies and indwelled the entire all of creation and all humanity. I mean it's just that's one place and then to start to go into it. So I'll stop now. Otherwise I'll ramble. Cause I think I, I don't, there's no place ministry doesn't happen or the role of the pastor um, outside of the office of pastor, but the role of the ministry of all believers to happen. It, it, there's, there's no place that it, that it stopped.
1: The, there are two, two quick anecdotes. Um, one is i've told before but i'll tell a really short version of it just for reference um and it captures when i realized how broken the system was and how limiting it was to the imagination of god's people and two when it opened back up for me in terms of imagine imaginative possibilities the first one happened when i was pastoring in hawaii i literally had um, a sit-down meeting with my biggest giver and he asked me point-blank if I was and if I was going to therefore preach anything postmodern. And he told me, and it, it, it was in no uncertain terms, I will, t- I will take my money and leave if I hear anything postmodern preached from the pulpit. Just sit with that. Sit with that pressure. If, he d- if, if I th- risked hinting at anything postmodern, Which, by the way, we could go on. We could have four episodes on the Christocentric nature of some of the my favorite postmodern thinkers (laughs) that have informed deeply some of what Brian is talking about in terms of the presence of Christ. You know, beyond these sort of binary understandings of the world. But that's beside the point. Think, consider the pressure there. I mean, it's if it's a pressure of a system that's about to blow. Because if I suggested, hinted, anything postmodern, I would have to fire two of my staff, I would take a reduction in salary, and I'd have to curtail most of our programming. That's how much power and influence he had. That's a system that's tilted towards destruction. So that's when it totally broke for me when I realized, oh, this sort of financial landscape that we are so familiar with that we hardly critical th- critically think about just became Like blatantly restrictive, but then it opened back up for me when I saw a church one time start a construction company. Not like a church leader saying, "Hey, this is my business, and I give my volunteer hours to my church through the board or something like." No, no, like the church itself started a construction company and hired felons, former felons, or fel. I guess you're not a former felon. Felons, formerly convicted. Um, criminals. And that was, the, that, was one of their res- that was one of their requirements, is that you had to have a criminal record, we would give you a second chance, and that became a discipleship opportunity. And it was wildly profitable. And the reason that the nonprofit could, that was the church could, ho- could have <coughs> calls and facilitate this business uh, under its umbrella is because nonprofit, 501c3, is a tax, is a tax restriction. It's a tax designation. It's not an income limitation. Right? like You can literally raise money, earn money, create wealth in a vast number of ways, so long as it's woven back into and funds the mission of the nonprofit. So anyhow, it opened back up for me all the possibilities of how we could diversify income streams and therefore diversify our creative praxis when I realized, oh my gosh, we could start a profitable business within our nonprofit, a profitable branch. Within our nonprofit, and just assure that those funds go to you know furthering our mission as a church, and the whole thing opened back up for me. It both decentralized the possibility of powerful givers, but it also like blew off the lid on imaginative possibilities in terms of kingdom creativity.
2: Yeah, Ryan, I think that's I think that would be the third piece that is, you know, I think pastors have to start speaking into it, telling the stories. Then you start releasing it and and showing the minute the priesthood of all believers all everyone where ministry can happen and the last one is then is to for churches like that to be brave enough to try something um and fail at it and fail at it at times I mean it's awesome that we we, are, we have to have the stories like the construction that probably ends up you know blowing up and doing being real successful but there, there's going to be some failures but the we have to have the ability to, to then move into uh, showing what some practices happen. I talked to a, he's a, a, an executive pastor of a church and he was running a nonprofit, but he was finding that he spent uh, about 70% of his time fundraising every year. And then as soon as the calendar year turned over, it was like he had to start again, no matter how successful it was, every year it kept. So they ended up starting a software company. Um, and it uh, and they ended, I think they that nonprofit now owns like 25 companies. The sole owner is the nonprofit, uh, and but they're for-profit companies that the sole the sole stakeholder is the nonprofit. Um, and they they again within their mission, the, the businesses have to I think hire a certain amount of uh, uh, people with some disabilities of different kinds, uh, things like that. So. Which is which was their missional um, uh, vision uh, for their nonprofit, and he says when once he left that nonprofit, he was never fundraising anymore, and they had increased their giving by like twenty-five times. I mean, I think one of the companies actually netted nineteen million one year. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was crazy, but it's a huge nonprofit, and uh, those are the. The, again, we're not tax people and lawyers and stuff like that, but these are the kind of things that that we, we do need to we'll need to move into praxis um, and 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 to see some examples of failure and of success. I think in order to broaden the imagination.
0: I was just remarking on Ryan's story: the reality of it's in this guy's perspective whether it's postmodern, right? Like, that's part of the conundrum of all of this right now. It, it paints a picture of the current state of where we're at. There's so many stats that come to mind. The stats of, you know, I think Barna really something that now it's over half of current pastors. And this is not just in our tribe. Over half of current pastors are flirting with just leaving the ministry. And in their paradigm, that's the Sunday morning pastor. That's not what we're talking about, the construction company owning pastor. That, that's just the current paradigm. In our own tribe, uh, looked up the stat. There's only 12 percent, and this was in 2015, of active pastors in the United States in our Nazarene denomination. Only 12 percent are under 40, which is wild. That's just wild by itself. But that also paints a picture of you know the vast majority of the ages of our pastors are in a model that we're currently critiquing, right? And there's there's an irony there, but there's a tension there as well because for me, I, I immediately go to Maybe we have listeners that are thinking, man, that's a little risky to open up a construction company and, and hire felons. But the alternative is, man, it feels like this is an expiring way of doing church. Like There is an expiration date. And I've heard stories, I've heard people say that, where they say, we're going to faithfully remain this Sunday morning church, but we know it'll last this long. But how do we, how do we start moving in that direction? Is this a thing? Because I'm worried too that Folks are going to hear us saying that we need to eliminate the Sunday morning church altogether, but this is, yet again, one of those opportunities where there's a beautiful marriage that could take place between some of the guerrilla pastor ministries and the Sunday morning traditions. What do you guys think about that?
2: So this is where, again, the beauty of a worship gathering with a group of a community, um, it's, it's t- stripped down Sunday morning to, the, to, the, to, the, to the, its essence, and it's a beautiful thing. And will never will never stop. I don't think uh, to say that people who believe and practice and practice the presence of Christ in our world um, to then be drawn into community to uh, to celebrate um, the remembering of the of the presence of Christ. I mean, that, I don't think that ever stop. I think it's built into us. So, however, the way we're doing it, both financially and and in practice uh where it being again insular to sunday mornings all those things the beauty of it right now and we can critique it to death is it is killing itself and it will kill itself and i think that only i am i'm excited about that i know a lot of people are very troubled by it i'm excited by it because it's going to explode it um into new ways of being um, that I think will be more faithful. So, uh, so you, I, that's the thing is, so if you're disagreeing with us and you agree with that, we don't need to critique that the church needs to basically be Sunday morning focused. It needs to be totally dependent on tithes and offerings. Then, I, then that's fine. Um, that's fine. I, I believe over the next five to 10 years, then your local church will continue to decline until it cannot function on its own anymore um, and will be taken over by the district polity and, uh, and be in crisis and all those things. And your pastor will go bivocational on, uh, if, if they're not already there. And well, all hold those on.
0: We, I feel like we need to name something even more ironic. It, that is the story of why both of you have a vocation on this district in the first place. This is a thing that's already happened in the past in both of your contexts, right? Is that not fair to say? Yeah. I
2: don't that's know fair. how
0: much you want to go into that, but you literally you have a unique guerrilla subversive presence founded ministry because that has already been the story of the location that you currently serve in. Is that that's is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, it's fair to say and the opposite will be fair to say because when I talk to people in the Midwest and Most of the churches are sliding, and they may be sliding from a higher number, um, but they always bring up examples of growing churches. And as, as, as the masses of churches, let's say your town has 50 churches, as the mass of the all 50 participants begin to slide, there will be two or three out of the 50 that rise up. Because there will be a gathering of the people leaving those other places that still want what was. So that will be the natural. Um, but yeah, I, in the Northwest, we're dealing with this uh, probably a lot more. And so there's a, there's people trying new things and new ways of being. Um, and so it has, again, you know, Ryan, I think even your story, I think it was 10, 15 years ago about the guy talking about postmodern. I I don't even know how to, I don't even know the last time we used that word, really, <laughs> uh, and how to identify things into it. It's more just life right now. Um, and whether the Northwest is a more postmodern area, yeah, I, maybe they're down the road a ways. I don't know what that means. I'm not saying that's forward or backwards or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It, it's, it's, our, it's our context right now. So, um, but so just going forward, I am not deconstructing. I am deconstructing. I'm not deconstructing just for the purpose of blowing it up. I'm saying in the deconstruction, it gives life to newness. Uh, And I'm not a biologist, but the beauty of it is this. I, I had a tree in my backyard and it had a fungus on the back of the leaves, you know, that was just, it looked horrible one year. And my father, I asked my father in law about it, and he was like, "Yeah, it happened. Don't worry, because all the leaves will fall off this winter. It's going to die. And guess what? Next spring, it will come back without the fungus. And hopefully, you don't get it again. Uh, so, that's this is what I'm saying. It's built into creation. Things are going to die. Uh, and I think the, the the way we're doing it now is on it is on a depending on where you are a fast or a slow decline and dying but that only gives new life it only gives if you if you're walking with Christ I would say ah I won't even go that far <laughs> uh, I won't even go that far I mean if you've got a kingdom imagination and you're walking life whenever you when something dies in front of you you keep you pick up your feet and you keep moving forward and there, your direction may change a bit every time you pick up your feet and move forward. Uh, and so there's going to be new practices and new ways of being in it. And we just happen to be people that are trying to look at the new ways. Um, and, uh, and aren't necessarily just trying to say, Hey, let's keep going. What, what always was in the way it always was.
1: I, I had a, uh, a phone conversation with a longtime friend. I hadn't talked to him in several years, but he was a friend from all the way back in high school. And Kid you not? We did this sort of this uh, kind of catch up for five minutes, and then he checked in on the ministry I was doing here in Washington, and so I gave him a little you know two minute blurb, and he said, "You know, Ryan, this is his quote exactly. You know, Ryan, I wish I would have been louder when I tried to warn you twenty years ago about the economic dead end you were headed toward. Those are his words exactly, and I was shocked. Like, like, is that a reflection on my ability to secure like a decent position at local church? And, you know, and so I pushed back being the fragile ego that I have. And he said, that's not at all I'm talking about. He said the signs were everywhere then that the economic systems that we created were going to self implode, which is exactly what Brian's saying. It's not has nothing to do with skill set. You could be the greatest preacher in Washington state. But we have a system, right, an economic system that is entirely unsustainable, and it's not reflected in the large church realities that we, we like to you know publicize. It's reflected in the general trends that we're seeing and in the anecdotal pressures that everyone in vocational ministry has felt in the last 30, 40 years. right? And it's not that something miraculously arose in our consciousness 20 or 30 years ago. it's that The system was headed towards destruction because it served a particular kind of purpose with a very minute focus. We're not there anymore. Right. We're not there anymore. And to to broaden that imagination to what both economically speaking, but also ministerially speaking, the whole thing needs to be reimagined. Right. Um, There's a book that I want to recommend because I think. While it doesn't explicitly deal with anything in the church and ministry world, it has everything to do with the economic pressures that we're feeling and the problem that is this economic paradigm as an unsolution I think is what what it calls it in the book meaning it it's not only that it's a partial solution or it's a failing solution, it's actually working against our desired goals as a quote unquote social service agency it's called um, the revolution will not be funded. And it talks about it talks about the nonprofit industrial complex and how it was never intended in the from its origins to actually serve a certain kind of social change. It was actually intended to protect to protect the stability of wealth. Now I don't need to get all into You know, a a certain analysis of the motivations for why we have nonprofit status in this economic paradigm that was shot through from the beginning with sort of a toxic motive. That's not all I'm doing. That's not all what I'm interested in doing. But what I am interested in doing is the data is back, right? The numbers are in. And whatever, however it started, whatever the origin story is for the current system that we're in is sort of beside the point. But we know for a fact it will not work moving forward. To achieve the kind of goals and the kind of change, kingdom changes that we're interested in, and we must reckon with that. And once you get into these conversations and you take the risk to change, you know, change your paradigm, your economic paradigm, and how you realize and fulfill your call, you realize, oh goodness, my friend was right. I wish I would have seen this 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But where where we are, where 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 we're at, right? and 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 death is seasonal death is around the corner as Brian would say right? and new life also is
0: the stakes are high and the current financial paradigm has significant limitations however we are not without hope or ideas about what to do this will be the subject of our next episode And while we are under no illusions that we have all of the answers to the myriad of problems that can be found within the local church, we're excited to share stories of those who have taken bold steps of faith to try something new, something different. We will be sharing one of these stories on our very next episode by diving deep into the ministries of one of my co-hosts, who is uniquely and creatively using money to do things that would otherwise not be taking place in the city that he lives and serves as a guerrilla pastor. So join us next time as we hear more specifics from Brian Wardlaw on all of the work that's being done in the Seattle City churches. Until then, I have been your host, Josiah, and this has been the Guerrilla Pastors Podcast.